It's like a very, very small proportion of people are responsible for the vast majority of the uh, abuse, uh, racism, expressions, uh, hate online. I I think I saw something like it was like 1% of internet users are responsible for, it was either 80 or 90%. Uh, Is that consistent with um, your experience and what you've seen? The the challenge though, Andrew, is uh, toxicity is viral. And what I mean by that is if I'm if I'm an asshole to you, the likelihood that you go and have a toxic interaction in in the next session where you're on that platform goes up by three hundred percent. So so while it does stem from a um, it's not really a small pool of users at this point, but like even one percent of inter- internet users, what happens is it's then viral and amplifies and and spreads really rapidly through those communities. Hello everyone, this is Zach Grauman. I was Andrew Yang's campaign manager and now the co-host of Yang Speaks with Andrew. On today's episode, we talk about the Facebook boycott and what's going on there. And we also bring on this guy who's fascinating. His name is John Redgrave. And he's an entrepreneur who's built this AI technology that identifies hate speech online. It's a fascinating conversation and extremely relevant right now. So tune in. Hope you guys enjoy. Well, this week on Yang Speaks, we're going to talk about the Facebook boycott. What is going on? Yeah. You might have seen a headline about this thing and thought, wow, what did Facebook do? <laughs> what, what did Facebook do? <laughs> Uh, what did they do? And uh, and what do we want from them? So I got to say, this Facebook boycott has now gathered up some of the biggest brands in America, in the world, really. Coca-Cola, Unilever, uh, Starbucks, and uh, Patagonia, North Face. Like there are, there are a lot of huge brands that have said they are not going to advertise on Facebook for the month of July. And this is big news. And I have to say, I fully support this effort. I think it's pretty phenomenal. Uh, and the, the genesis of this was not the advertisers themselves. It's not like Coke woke mm-hmm. up one day and was like, you know what? Like, let, let's give Facebook a hard time. So as usual, there were some other people that were working behind the scenes trying to make this happen. And in this case, it was the NAACP, the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, which... Uh, is anti-hate generally, uh, you know, they, we tend to think of them as um, being anti, anti-Semitism, I suppose, if that's like a, can you say anti-anti-Semitism, <laughs> making, making sense, uh, and <laughs> color of change. The campaign's called Stop Hate for Profit, and what they're asking Facebook to do is to change their ways in terms of how they police and monitor uh, and uh, enforce bans against hate speech on their platform. It's, um, I was looking in this, in this, Andrew, and it really is, I was like, I was thinking, what is the impact of people not advertising on Facebook? And the reality is Facebook is advertising today. You know, they they make 70 billion a year in ad revenue, but there's no way to sell a product right now. Um, on, a, on any sort of scale or hyper focus without using Facebook. And it's one of the reasons why the, I think a lot of people have problems with them because they don't need to listen to anyone. They are advertising, they are marketing. And even these companies, they're all, these massive brands are only a small percentage of their entire business, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, it, it, the, the numbers are really interesting where if you look at the top 100 brands, uh, they accounted for 4.2 billion in Facebook advertising last year, which sounds like a truck ton. But you're talking about a company that makes 70 billion a year, so 4.2 is, you know, maybe uh, five or six percent uh, of the total. Right. Um, and it's not like all hundred brands are turning it off for a year. Uh, you have maximally, right. you know, these brands are turning it off for a month. So this is a significant dent, um, but it's not threatening like the uh, core business of, of Facebook to the point where they're going to be having cash shortfalls. 
in part because of the universe of advertisers, like you just said, Zach, because I remember when I ran a company, if you wanted to reach consumers, you had to advertise on Facebook. There, there were like the granddaddies of ways to reach people. It was Facebook and its Instagram uh, affiliate. Uh, and then you had Google. And that's where a lot of your money was going. And we were not a major brand. We were a relatively small company. So the reason why so much of their revenue is not dependent upon the major brands is you have every small to medium sized business in the country that has any degree of internet savviness putting ads on Facebook. Right. And so that the issues are so many companies that literally can't afford to not advertise on Facebook because they're get generating the vast majority, if not all of their business from Facebook. Um, so I do applaud. It is a big deal that the companies that can afford to not advertise on Facebook are doing so. I think that's important. So you, it's more of, it's not just symbolic. It's you've got the best American brands we have saying like Facebook, this is wrong. And that is a big deal. They're, they can have a lot more power, even though they're a small percent of revenue, they've got a lot more power collectively, I think, than these mom and pop shops um, trying to throw their weight around. This is absolutely terrible for Facebook's brand. Imagine being a company and having every major brand being like, yeah, uh, no, no to advertising. I mean, if this <laughs> happened to a TV show or personality, like this person would have to be, you know, probably thrown off the air <laughs> if, like, if, if every yeah. brand uh, was like, uh, no, thank you. So I, I don't want to understate the power of this boycott. Right. I, I think it's uh, one of the most significant efforts I've seen um, in modern life uh, that I can recall. Uh, and so the first question I think people might be asking is like, what did Facebook do? What did they do to deserve this? Yeah. What's the issue? What's the issue? And a lot of it isn't so much what they did, it's what they didn't do. <laughs> it's like, like, like yeah. they're just looking up and being like, well, first, what they didn't do is they, they didn't actually take a hardline stance against um, a lot of content uh, on the network or sources of misinformation or, uh, in some cases, really rancid, horrendous messages. And so if you're a high-level advertiser, you're like a Coke or a Starbucks, uh, you don't want your high-level product and brand associated with something sketchy. So that's like a, a mm -hmm. concern that some of these advertisers are leveling. But Facebook has, number one, taken a very, very hands-off approach to just about anything on their site. Uh, and so that that's a very legitimate concern that uh, both civil rights activist groups and advertisers would have. And then number two, what they have not done is they have not been transparent at all about their own operations or standards. Uh, whenever someone comes and criticizes them about uh, what they're doing or not doing, they just say, essentially, trust us, we're working on it. Um, and there was a <laughs> and there was a period when that actually worked pretty well for them. Um, because yeah. the Facebook brand was pretty positive, big text brand was pretty positive. People just associated them with innovation and ease and modernity. Uh, and there was this mm -hmm. instinct, well, that Facebook knows better than the government. Facebook knows better the than regulators. Right. Facebook. So when they said trust us, it actually like worked for a while. Um, but now people are like, wait a minute, do we trust you? <laughs> like what's really going on over there? What and, have you done to earn that trust? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, let's see, you know, did Russians uh, interfere with our election last time uh, with your uh you know at a minimum like not safeguarding against it was there a cambridge analytica hack of um millions of users uh that and there might have been others that we just don't know about like that one was publicized are you making tens of billions of dollars off of our data and we're not seeing a dime like uh, like these mm -hmm. things are all true and so now everyone's looking at facebook and saying actually we don't trust you and mm -hmm. and and this is the situation facebook is in it's unprecedented in their history now, they have had a very poor track record of uh, genuinely opening up their practices and coming clean and being subject to outside um, scrutiny. They're frankly just terrible at it. Um, like th this is, and, and someone talked about how Facebook is less a company than a country or a civilization. I think it was, I was yeah, talking to they're someone. They're bigger than most countries, aren't they? Oh, they, they have 2.2 billion users. So that's, 
way bigger than any country. <laughs> you know, what I mean, so they're joking like it's Emperor Zuck and his 2.2 billion subjects, and and so right. so that they are really legitimately terrible at at saying like yes, um, here's what we did wrong, and you can check it out, and uh, you know we need help with this. Like they genuinely think that they are bigger and smarter and better than anyone else in the world. And if you criticize them, um, their instinct is just to deflect and, uh, and you know, uh, like put out cryptic communications being like, we're working on it, we're looking at it. So there's a legitimate <laughs> cultural problem that we can all see that um, they don't feel themselves truly to be subject to right. much of anything from the outside world. And Facebook has been saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but Facebook's generally been arguing, um, we are a marketplace for ideas. We're a platform for ideas. And that users, our users generate things and we just exist. We have no say, input into what goes on there. Um, and so therefore, when there's terrible things on there or super positive things, we're just hands off. Is that... And now we're at the point where we're like, that's not cool. That's that's now we got that's now become problematic. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that that is right. They say we're not a publisher, we're a platform. Uh, and right. as a platform, we don't have responsibility or accountability for anything that people say on our platform. Um, the way that, for example, a magazine or a, a TV network would have like standards. Right. And then they approach. Uh, banning or restricting communication on their quote-unquote platform as like oh that would be censorship um we're just like open forum and then let everyone do what what they want now um that to me is a very convenient stance for them to take um but but it it, it also <laughs> is um but but it, it's it's not matching up to reality because we have to acknowledge that facebook at this point is the biggest publisher in the history of the world like saying that we're yeah. not a publisher, like your entire thing is content and advertising. Like you're making 70 billion bucks on ads. Like, you know what, what that really seems like to me is like a, is a publishing empire or media empire because you know how a lot of these media companies make money also on advertising. So if, if we mm -hmm. hold them to certain standards, it seems strange for Facebook, which is bigger and richer than all of the other media companies combined to somehow say like, no, we have less responsibility <laughs> than, than, than all of these other companies. Um, and, and this is a way for them to really maximize their revenue and profitability. Uh, you know, it'd be one thing if Facebook were making decisions where it was like, oh, this right. is actually like uh, against our interests. Uh, there was a Facebook investor um, who characterized it as like, Facebook just hates friction. It just wants to grow and it sees everything that you uh, are throwing in its way as friction. This boycott, like, how, how do we get rid of this friction? friction. <laughs> like, like, that's like there. So, uh, and, <laughs> you know, restrictions on content, like, that would be friction. Like, they're, they're just trying right. to um, be as frictionless as possible. And, that, you know, that, that worked during a growth phase of a scrappy startup, kind of. Um, but at this point, you're the you know, potentially the biggest, most influential company in the world, uh, you know, you need to have some kind of different approach and evolution and responsibility. Right. So what are the advertisers and civil rights organizations asking Facebook to do? So I found this to be fascinating because I was like, ooh, what are like the demands? Like, how do we know if this boycott yeah, works? Yeah, we actually pulled this up. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what, what are they trying to accomplish here? And so there's a whole list of demands uh, that they there are about ten of them. I will go through some of the um, the bigger ones because some of them are related to each other. So this one I thought was very mm -hmm. very important. Submit to regular third party independent audits of uh, of uh, identity based hate and misinformation with summary results published on a publicly accessible website. Um, because Facebook again is a black box and they're just like hey. Um, we got it. Like our stuff says it's good. <laughs> like, yeah. like where, so that the, the uh, boycott is calling for someone else to actually uh, post the data in a way that's not completely mm -hmm. subject to Facebook's own uh, internal reporting. I think that is perfectly reasonable. 
Um, I think providing, not this similar, providing an audit of and refund to advertisers whose ads were shown next to content that were that was later removed for violations of terms of service. Um, I mean, heck, if you removed content and I was an advertiser and I was next to that, um, I would not want to have paid for that ad. <laughs> so seriously, I mean, there's some really bad fails on there where it's like, you know, like charity, most wholesome charities in the world advertising next to discriminatory hate groups, you know, Facebook, whatever. Anyway, um, that's an easy one and fair in any other business, by the way. The next demand, remove public and private groups focused on anti-Semitism, violent conspiracies, uh, Holocaust denialism, climate denialism, white supremacy. Yeah. You know, that there's another piece around this that's uh, ensure accuracy in political and voting matters by eliminating the political exemption, um, which is something around their uh, disavowal of being able to verify whether or not a political ad is true or false. Um, and th this to me is both common sense and irresponsible because um, cable networks say that they have to verify whether a political ad was true or false before they broadcast it. But Facebook's mm -hmm. like, who's to know? We should let the voters decide. Right. It's like, like a voter has the time to figure out whether some Facebook ad served up to them was bullshit or not. Uh, so Facebook is clearly grappling with what to do about political ads. They recently made an announcement saying we could all turn off political ads if we wanted to on our Facebook page. Now, I'm sure that that setting will be buried somewhere. Like, like I would be thrilled <laughs> if it was a giant button saying, like, you want to turn off political ads? Um, because I think a lot of people would click that button. Um, and to me, having political ads on Facebook, if you're going to have them, you need to verify that they're not nonsense and misinformation and the rest of it, particularly given that we know there are foreign actors that have been interfering in our elections. So you need to actually have take some responsibility. Um, having voters have the ability to turn it off, highly interesting. I like it. You know, it's, it's uh, individual autonomy. And if I don't want to see political ads, I get to turn it off. Saying to Facebook, hey, no political ads at all uh, on the platform, highly interesting. Um, I wouldn't mind that either. You could make Facebook a, a politics-free zone. Uh, and clearly, you're edging in that direction a tiny bit if you're letting people turn it off themselves. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Let me ask you this. This is the conservative in me asking. When people hear, if the general Republican angle on this is when you hear we're going to ban the hate speech, we're going to ban false information, things like that. How do you... How does the organization, how does Facebook, how does this regulatory organization define hate and define what's right or wrong here? Because to me, there's some obvious ones, right, where it's there's clearly back science, people denying the Holocaust existed, things like that seems obvious. But the fear that I think a lot of conservatives have is that this starts to go to a place where if I just don't agree with your position, I can filter it, I can mark it as spam i can kick it off the platform what are your thoughts on 
and this is kind of what you talk about with John too on this podcast is how do you, what are your thoughts on how you quote unquote regulate the hate? Yeah, so their, their request here with this boycott is to create expert teams to review submissions of hate and harassment. So, uh, so th- this is uh, something that you need some kind of tribunal or a committee on, and then they make a decision, yeah. and then we can see what kind of decision they make. And I don't disagree that this seems sticky, where you're just like, oh, no, like, who the heck is going to decide what's uh, off limits and what's appropriate? Because principal disagreement, totally appropriate. Right. Like people saying like, hey, like I, I actually have uh, this very, very different point of view on it. Fine. Um, but then when you start having, right. you know, like re- revisionist history, like uh, uh, about the Holocaust or something else that's like a, an historical event, uh, that, like that ends up feeding into uh, very dark ideologies. And so you can't say, well, we don't have the ability to draw any lines because then you wind up with some really evil, awful stuff. Um, and Facebook ha- hasn't even taken that stance. I, I agree. I think the way you would do this, Andrew, is you'd have to have a as unbiased as you possibly could board of reasonable people from both sides of the aisle, right? Or various different ideologies and backgrounds and ethnicities and um, experiences. So you could come to terms with either reasonable rules or reasonable arbitration or whatever that however that works and i realize that's hard to me what bothers me is yes this is hard and challenging maybe cost a little money but facebook you're making 70 billion dollars a year you have infinity money you like the excuse that we need to grow and that profitability at all costs doesn't make any sense it, it's not making sense size. a long time ago it's true they, they almost have a money machine over there <laughs> they just like yeah. sit there and like just uh, print hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah, like this isn't fair anymore to like, be like, profitability overall. Like, come on, you're you're yeah. So um, yeah, so someone compares this to uh, negative externalities, where if you had a, a chemical company or a manufacturing company in the 20th century, and there was a period where they just dump shit in the river because they'd be like, whatever, and then eventually right. we looked up and we're like, hey, uh, you really should not be dumping your waste products in the river. We need rules around that. Um, there's something similar going on with Facebook where they're almost like these psychic waste products that are getting produced. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like they're like printing bajillions of dollars, but it's like, hey, you know what's suffering? Our democracy, our mental health, uh, our ability to distinguish fact from fiction, our ability to, to communicate with each other, our ability to trust anything. Like, like the, these are the negative externalities of some of Facebook's practices and Facebook is attributing essentially zero or near zero consequence to these things. They're looking at them being like, uh, like, you know, yep. uh, like I, I hear you chirping about these things and I will try and get you to shut up as expediently as possible because I really don't genuinely care about anything you're saying. <laughs> it's, it's like, the, it's like really the yeah. message everyone has been getting for a long time. And so now, so now you literally have like the biggest brands in the world lining up being like facebook please please like you know take this seriously start like listening to some of these people that want you to get your acts together and grow up as a company and one of the most encouraging things about this is that there are people in facebook that are saying the same thing that like the people at facebook are like i work here and I'm feeling less and less good about it because everyone's starting to hate us and they can tell that we're not actually trying to solve any of these problems in a serious way. Now, what yeah. I know about the Facebook organization from like, from when I, you know, like outside looking in, cause, so who the heck knows? Um, but it's, it's a very, very top heavy organization in the sense that a lot of the power resides with uh, Mark and Cheryl. Uh, and and mm-hmm. if you look at even like the cap, the capitalization structure, like the voting rights, it's really Mark, like, you know, yeah. like, like Mark's got the ability to override everything under the sun. Um, so so when we talk about all of these things, like it, there's almost one human being that matters in so far as practices significantly changing in is his name is Mark Zuckerberg. Like the, the fact that there are other people on Facebook now that are trying to agitate for this is very, very powerful because, you know, from what I've heard about uh, the workings of, of Facebook organization is they do not like people 
being uh, pissed off and unhappy within their ranks. Like uh, they, they right. consider themselves like a <laughs> fairly, you know, harmonious org. Uh, and, uh, you know, the last thing you want is friction from within. <laughs> it's like, um, but, but, it's, but, it's, but it's not the kind of thing where, you know, it's not realistic for them to be like, you're a source of friction, get out. Because like they're like, you know, apparently dozens or hundreds of, of employees who are voicing some of the same concerns. So I'm right. cautiously optimistic that we're reaching a really unprecedented point in Facebook's history where we might see some genuine change and genuine reform. Um, they're going to do something in response to this. Uh, whether it goes as far as the list of requested reforms, I don't know. Uh, certainly their history would make you think that it will not go anywhere near that far. Um, but yeah. if anything is going to make it happen, it's this time, this era. And congratulations to the activists and leaders who've made this boycott so powerful. Uh, it's it's awesome. Again, I'm not sure I can remember something like this happening. It's so in, I was a public policy major and there's something called a collective action failure. I don't know if you learned this, but it's, but it's like, it's like when you have a park, right? And everybody, everybody loves a great, open, beautiful park, but there's always a couple assholes that will go in and leave some trash or park their car on it or blast music on it. Um, and if one or two people do that, it's not the end of the world, but when everyone does it, it becomes a mess. Or if no one's cleaning it up, it hurts everybody and the value of it starts going down. And that to me feels like what's sort of happening with Facebook where like everybody likes the idea of connecting the world and having a platform to share anything and find anyone anywhere. But we've now gotten to a point where there's so much mess and no one's cleaning it up. And the bigger problem, Andrew, is that there's no other park to play in. This is the only one. Um, and so I'll, I'll give credit. Oh, I, and, and when another companies. park was forming, this park bought that park. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they messed that one up too. And so we're, we're all stuck in this like shit filled park and we're begging someone to just clean it up. And we don't even want like an epic amount of cleaning. We just want the basics done. Um, like these demands are so freaking reasonable. That's what like to hit me so hard. I'm like, they're not doing any of this. Um, so you know, I hope this, uh, to your point, like besides massive government intervention, this is probably the only other way you could do it. You really have to reflect on the fact we've gotten to this point, you know, like, so the, the government's been completely out to lunch. Facebook's just been doing its thing, growing like a yeah. giant Jack in the Beanstalk type <laughs> operation, <laughs> where they're like, you yeah. know, like, or like overtaking the world. Right. Uh, and now we're at a point where literally it's like Coca-Cola and Starbucks and Pepsi and Unilever and Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia, like standing up for us. If you really reflect champion. on that for a second, like that's how bad things have the champion of the people. Clorox, the champion of the people. Like that's what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah. And in part, and in part because our government is just so behind the curve on these issues like there, there was a period they yeah. just worshipped uh technology uh and they don't understand it uh, you know i mean it's one of my goals is going to be to try and speed government up on these issues certainly the data dividend project that we announced last week is part of this like we should own and yeah. benefit from our own data and so if you have not signed up for your data dividend go to ddpforall.com and get that done uh, July 1, actually, the CCPA got it is in effect in terms of enforcement. And we have some exciting announcements yep. on that side. So that's one big part of it. Uh, but this uh, maturity that we're asking Facebook to demonstrate in terms of how it deals with uh, its content and political ads and other things is so important. It's so central. And kudos to the people who've led this particular charge. Certainly, I'm very yes. supportive of it. Uh, and I hope that uh, the that the people in Facebook who listen to this, like you are very, very powerful. You know, you're like 10,000 times more powerful than anyone outside of Facebook because we know that uh, Facebook leadership and Mark Zuckerberg listen to you more than they listen to anyone else. Uh, and yeah, so keep pushing and uh, let's try and get Facebook to live up to its responsibilities as one of the biggest and most powerful companies in human history. John has literally started AI that I hope uh, Facebook or a lot of these tech companies start using to help meet some of these demands. I get that right. Yeah. So John is the 
the CEO of his brand new tech company, uh, co-founder and CEO of Centropy, which has a product to identify uh, hate speech and uh, in, on any platform. So you could use it not just on Facebook, but you could use it on your corporate intranet. You could use it on uh, other social media platforms. And it's a really interesting discussion. It's a really interesting problem. Uh, you know, I know when you hear this, you might think, oh, gosh, this sounds awful. Like, because who the hell wants software looking at the shit that I type? Um, none of us really. <laughs> no, 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 truly. I mean, I understand. Like, yeah, none, yeah. Of, none, none of us wants that. Um, but if you look system wide uh, and society wide, like, w do you need some kind of tools and infrastructure? Because. After that, it falls literally on the, the head of some miserable underpaid human being, generally a contractor who's supposed to read it and and see that it's, you know, acceptable or unacceptable or most likely in most forums, it just goes completely untouched. Um, and 99.8% right. of the time, that is completely fine because we're reasonable people and the rest of it. But then some small fraction of the time, it's toxic and it can even become... Uh, damaging and dangerous and uh, destructive. And the way that these internet networks work is that a little bit of poison goes a long way. It's like, yeah. <laughs> like, like if, if you've ever looked at, yeah. you know, let's say like, like you get a hundred emails a day and I just had one of them every other day. That's like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like, like, something like really fucking terrible. And you're going to be like, oh, my emails were 99.5% acceptable. It's like all you're going to focus on is the one person that that's sending some kind of like crazy right. message. Uh, you know, so so that's the problem that we're facing on a lot of these platforms is a little bit of crazy, unfortunately, goes a long way. Uh, and so how do you identify the folks who are not there for any reasonable purpose except to uh, spread hate or harass people or harm people in some way. Uh, so that's the problem that John Redgrave uh, is trying to solve. He's a really, really savvy, experienced guy who's the uh, CEO of another company that was bought by Apple in, in artificial intelligence. Uh, learned a lot from him about how his company is trying to solve this problem. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Very happy to welcome to Yang Speaks, the co founder and CEO of Centropy. Serial entrepreneur, investor, AI guru, John Redgrave. He sounds like a fictional British lord. Welcome to Yang Speaks, John. <laughs> 
Thanks for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate it. It's uh, nice to be part of the Yang Gang. Um, I'm really humbled by the opportunity to chat with you this afternoon. I am so excited to sit down with you because you're working on something that might help us get out of this mess that we're in, and you've been working on it for years. So uh, if you could share a bit about your background and how you came to be working on uh, AI detect chin of hate speech, which is what we're going to get into. I was fortunate enough to um, be introduced to two computer science professors, both geniuses in their own right. Chris Ray and Mike Caffarella are their names. Um, Chris, he won a MacArthur Genius Award. And so it literally joining these geniuses, we were doing the most cutting edge AI work where we were essentially teaching machines how to read with human levels of context. Wow. The most important work we did at the company was with DARPA. And we were working with DARPA through the Memex program. And in that, we were fighting human trafficking. And so in the human trafficking domain, and this leads into my centerpiece story, so I'll get there. But in the human trafficking domain, what's really problematic is when a human trafficking ring is broken up, all of the language and the patterns of behavior changes. Right, So you have this adaptive adversary problem. And because you have that problem, you need really advanced technology that can understand linguistic evolution. Right, So it's, I'm making it sound maybe more complicated than, well, it is fairly complicated from a computational perspective, but at the end of the day, we are figuring out how language changed. Um, so they communicate in code and DARPA is trying to figure out what the heck they're talking about and how to detect what they're saying, they switch the codes all the time because they don't want to get caught. Uh, is that is that the That's challenge? You, you nailed it. So this is a problem. One, the human trafficking problem has been one that's, you know, frankly existed for you know our nearly our entirety as human beings. But uh, you know the the people who are perpetrating human trafficking have gotten much smarter. And and so when a human trafficking ring would get broken up, all of a sudden the patterns would change. So phone numbers that are properly formatted with parentheses, three numbers, dash, four numbers would change into leet speak, which is the, the combination of changing numbers into alphanumeric symbols, um, right, or patterns. So like the, the classic one that most people know is changing um, the number three into an E, for instance. Right, so you'd start to see this leet speak be introduced, new combina combinations. People would write out the numbers, but the most interesting pattern that we saw was when dollar denominations started to shift into flower varietals. So literally, instead of saying this will cost you a thousand dollars, they would say this is going to cost you a thousand, you know, uh, carnations. Yeah, exactly, tulips, carnations, carnations right? <laughs> and and being able to pick that up. Um, as a human being it, 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 who studies it is actually not that hard, but to train a machine to do it is really hard. So then you got uh, absorbed into Apple and then now you're back at it where you have co-founded a new company that is taking some of the expertise that Lattice developed and taking on a whole new problem that right now is uh, very, very central to our current struggles. Yeah, I mean, look, the the, ram the psychological and mental health ramifications, right? Like when you think about, you know, I, I, I did a little digging, um, you know, and thought about your mental, uh, mental health and wellness part of your scorecard. It's like this is a fundamental aspect of that, right? So, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple data points, right? So 30% of adults in the U.S. Have, have experienced severe online harassment. When you apply that to kids, it's 60%. Right. And the, and so the, the challenge is that the story about your friends is not unique. Like that's, that's our, that's our state of affairs at this that's point. the new normal. Yeah. The indicators are terrible. I mean, we have a mental health crisis right now in this country and that was pre pandemic and the pandemic has by objective measurements, something like either tripled or 10 tupled, uh, like the mental health problems in yeah. this country. Then the number of parents who ex report extreme stress Thing went something from like two percent to thirty-seven percent, um, and a, as a parent, you know, you and I can understand why why they'd be feeling that way. Uh, uh, incidents of self-harm, crisis text line use has uh, doubled to tripled, um, and, and it's particularly bad for young people. 
And, and to me, like we're really losing the thread. It's like if our uh, people are this anxious and depressed and sick, if our kids are struggling to this degree, like what the hell are we doing? Like what's the point of anything we're doing if you look up and you see your, your children suffering? Yeah, I mean, look, this is about, you know, making um, both our physical world and our digital world better because for our kids, the, the manifestation of their physical self and digital self will be one and the same. I would argue. And, and I think that that requires us to reflect upon not only what's happening in, you know, the physical part of society, but also the digital part of our society. And, and as I reflect on everything that's happened in the past three weeks in particular, I, you know, I'm very much in support of Black Lives Matter. I stand behind Black Lives Matter. Um, I, I really hope that this creates change. But when I, when I think about you know, a role that I potentially can play, you know, the physical world is one that so much, so much focus is being applied to rightfully so, but the digital world is just, we're losing. We're really losing. The We've been losing there. that for a long time. We have. For, for sure. Yeah. I mean, do you, I, you know, you're, um, I think we're both old enough, uh, to remember the well, the well was, I think the first online forum and the founders of the well interestingly came out with a book, um, and they talked about the struggles with moderation and harassment and abuse in their community because as soon as they introduced anonymity, all of a sudden, all hell broke loose, right? You saw, you saw kind of the worst behaviors of humanity because everybody was behind the veil of, their, of the keyboard and the screen. It'd be particularly bad for kids. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a nerdy Asian kid growing up, I'd have a hard day at school. At least I could close the door and be alone. You know, like today you close the door and the kids are still right there with you with the, cause you pull up the smartphone and uh, see them all, uh, you know, online uh, and not even them, just like these idealized versions of them or these vicious versions of them. Yeah. I mean, the, and, and I've talked to my niece and nephew who are older about this and they have days where they don't want to pick up their phone because they're worried about what they're going to have to look at. And, you know, I think as I consider this problem space and I, I had a couple other things that really impacted me. So, you know, one, two of my best friends in San Francisco went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, um, the school in Florida that suffered a mass casualty event. And then a very close family friend of ours, um, uh, who I grew up with as well. Um, he, his wife was shot 15 times in a mass shooting in Cincinnati and survived. And, you know, when we, so these are terrible events, unequivocally terrible events. But when you look at what perpetrators, you know, the perpetrators were doing and, and how they got into these echo chambers, a lot of it was they were getting red pilled online. Right. And so I just, I felt called, frankly, to, come out and and try to make a difference when it came to abuse online because if we don't solve abuse online then you know i, I think we continue to lose this battle long term around well the, the like, online feeds into the offline where you look at like the new zealand shooter you know who was very much um online uh in terms of their radicalization and then the, their attempt to share the act uh in, in real time i mean it's not just like oh like you know people saddened i mean it radicalizes people it makes them capable of uh inhuman tragic catastrophic atrocities uh and so i'm really glad that you're standing up to say look we can't just turn a blind eye to this anymore it's like feeding into the destruction of our way of life um, but we had Jaron Lanier on Yang Speaks not that long ago. And uh, do you know Jaron? I don't. Um, so uh, so his ideas to me are, are in some ways like a necessary foundational layer for what you're talking about. So here's like the, um, the, the, I think, very commonly held view. It's like, look, people are people. People are nasty online. That sucks. But, you know, First Amendment, free speech. Like, uh, what do you really want to do? Like, who's going to police this? Do you trust the government to police this? Do you trust these firms to police this? Uh, so it, it's just kind of a necessary evil. And so that that's like a, a basic point of view that, that a lot of people have. Uh, and then Jaron Lanier comes along and says, look, 
uh, there's something about this digital commons that enables negative ideas and ideologies to spread much more uh, virulently and effectively than in an offline world. In an offline world, if you're someone who holds terrible beliefs, it's not that easy to somehow like find other people who are going to like hear you out. You know, it's like, what are you going to do? Like go into the town square and just be like, hey, I hate these people. I hate these people. You know, it's like it, it, it's really it, like it's not that easy. Um, but uh, online, you can set up like a, a convening place for your hateful beliefs or ideologies or conspiracy theories. Uh, and then people who are adrift and lost can like find their way to it and wind up going down these very deep rabbit holes around other people who will incite them uh, towards hatred. Uh, and th there was a joke about how on YouTube, you're always like three uh, clicks away from Alex Jones or whatnot, where like these conspiracy theories are very high engagement. And so you, you wind up and they get fed to you by some of these algorithms because they're high engagement. And so you could just be there like, you know, watching movie trailers or whatever. And then before you know it, like a little while later, you're like, what's going on? There's like some some crazy conspiracy theory. So if, if you look at the mechanics of these digital networks and, uh, uh, and, and the Internet, they end up giving rise to much net more negative and destructive behaviors and ideologies than was previously possible. And then that's where we are right now uh, is like everyone's looking around being like, what the fuck do we do? Because the government seems way asleep at the switch on this stuff. Like, they, you know, it's like they haven't had a serious look in, at, at uh, technology in 25 years. You know, like they're looking around being like, what? Like, like there was a period where like technology is like, just like they're uh, beyond government like reproach because we're just too dumb and behind. Um, and then you look at the technology firms and you have companies like Facebook that are looking up being like not responsible for anything that, that, that goes on. Like we'll have some content moderator, moderators who lose their minds just staring at the worst of humanity for uh, weeks on end and then they, they sue us because they were contractors and it turns out we traumatized like, you know, hundreds of them. So we'll quietly pay them millions of dollars and then just do it again. So, so that is like the current world we're in right now. I just want to set that up for you just in the sense that, um, you know, because I'm sure people have um, like uh, a native resistance to anyone trying to uh, curb any kind of uh, behavior online. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the people who um, contend that, you know, well, this is how it is and this is how it's going to be, um, like, let's let's take an extreme example let's talk about racism like okay well if we if we aren't bucking the status quo on racism like is that are we going to accept that status quo or not right and and i think this is a moment where it's not only on us as individuals to take a stand but also uh, you know, frankly, the tech companies to take a stand like they're we're they're you know, the leaders of the biggest tech companies in the world, their metal is being tested right now. And it's going to be really interesting to see who's willing to stand up to the abuses that are rampant on their platform and who isn't. Right. And what does that mean for their not only for, you know, them as human beings, but but really, what does it mean for them as companies? Right. Because you're, you're right. I mean, the the biggest platforms are the places where a lot of this content is is concentrated and it's not you know people think oh it's 4chan and 8chan and some of these offshoots it's not i mean this is on the main street of the internet at this point and while it spreads from some of the more toxic corners like 4chan and 8chan you know facebook twitter reddit discord you know others um all all have challenges that they need to step up to um, and, and frankly, that's why we built our company because your point about content moderation is a great one. I mean, one, the content moderation industry is a multi-billion dollar industry now propped up by people who are having to, you know, look at the worst of humanity on a daily basis with terrible tools, not very sophisticated technology and, you know, frankly end up in large in, in huge numbers with PTSD. 
Like that doesn't. Yeah, who seem wouldn't right. wind up with PTSD if you were just watching child porn and beheading videos all day? I mean, you you would lose your mind. You, uh, you know, it's like like they're trying to keep us all from losing our minds, uh, but they're going to lose their minds. Yeah, and so so the the big question is, all right, well, w- what can we do? You know, one, it's can we build better technology, and two, can we get the companies to actually stand up, right, or or force them to stand up, um, and so. You know, while um, I think the the executive order around uh, Twitter um, was interesting, like CDA 230 was the crux of that executive order, right? So um, CDA 230 has been around since the 90s, right? Since yeah. Prodigy. And like this is a regulation that deserves additional attention and scrutiny. Yeah, um, it deserves some modernization. I mean, what the heck? They passed this law in the 90s when... You know, you were still looking at like, you know, GeoCities or whatnot. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have Google. Like none of these none of these platforms existed when that regulation was put into place. And while I think the regulation is incredibly important, to be clear, because I, you know, I think the, the concept of, well, look, let me boil it down as a restaurant, right? If I own a restaurant, I have the right to let people into my restaurant or not. Right. So it's um, or like a, a school or, you know, a church. Right. You, ha- you have the right um, from a, from the point of um, free association. Right. To to let people in or not. And I think that's an important principle that is applied by CDA 230 to give companies the right to moderate or not to moderate. Right. And not be held liable for that. But. I think it's really challenging because there's such a large array or diversity of what is required of the companies to get that protection, right? Senator Wyden, who who put it into place, he constructed it as both a sword and a shield, right? So the sword is you can moderate what you want. The shield is you are not held liable for what's posted on your site. I think that's incredibly important, but you know, to have that same principle applied to um, companies who are actually making an earnest effort to moderate versus companies who make zero effort to moderate and let hate, hate spread rampantly. Seems like that. I love that distinction. Yeah. It's like, look, if you're trying to do the right thing in investing, then, you know, we'll, we'll not hold you liable. But if you're just like kind of just hand waving at it <laughs> and saying like, oh, we're protected, like we can't do it. It's too hard. It's like literally you're some of the biggest, richest country companies in the world. I mean, I just said countries. I mean, you might as well be a country. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like at this point. Uh, you know, Facebook reaches 2.2 billion people. I mean, that's bigger than any country. And, uh, you know, it's it's valued at two thirds of a trillion dollars. Like, you know, it's got tens of billions. Like if anyone can invest the proper resources in it, it's them. But instead of leading in that direction, they're just like not our responsibility. If you just improve transparency reporting on what's actually happening and in general platform transparency, that would go a long way to change the behavior of users. Right. Not only users, but also to say to the world, hey, we're actually taking a stand. Here's what we're removing. Here's why we're removing things and and to be more clear and consistent about why things are happening. Right. Part of it is part of the challenge is it just feels like the Wild West. Right. You go on to Twitter and in the same day that, you know, someone gets blocked for, um, you know, one form of abuse, you can find that exact same form of abuse in another pocket of Twitter. Yeah, I mean these these companies are playing whack a mole, uh, and on, on one hand you you're like okay I get it like you know there's, there's a lot of um, stuff you're after and I'm not gonna like be too mad at you if you like it, you know if a mole popped up for a little while but on the other hand there's just like so little rhyme or reason to it where like it's hard to have confidence and it's also clear that this isn't like a main priority for certain of them in the way it should be like it it should be a much bigger priority than it is. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways this has become existential for Facebook. And and to be fair, you know, you won't find me defending Facebook very often, but they have incredibly good machine learning talent. Like incredibly good. And so their ability to detect different forms of abuse is better than anybody else's. Like orders of magnitude better in my opinion. Now, it this is the point though. You can detect it, but are you going to take a stand against it? Right. And so you get into these policy arguments where people are saying, well, you know, maybe 
maybe we should do this, but people aren't taking a, a data informed approach. Instead, they're saying, well, here's the thing we're getting beat over the head with in the press. So now we have to write a policy against this. I'm like that, that feels haphazard to me. I've always been a believer that if you can figure out what the data looks like, build your policies such that you can impact the data in the way that you want. Well, well, this is really the thing that that frustrates me and so many people about Facebook. It's like like the, their situation is like we're doing our thing. Oh, we're, we've been publicly criticized for this thing that came out in the press, like Cambridge Analytica or like uh, some other uh, flare up, and then they're like, oh snap, Let, let's like. Uh, say i'm so sorry we'll do better and then come up with some policy and then like uh someone internally ends up you know dealing with it so like here are, like the major problems with this number one it's like we're not really sure what's going on with you post like your policy implementation because you're not transparent and and two you have better data than us so like why are you waiting for uh, us to like get mad at you about something that that happened in some cases like months and months ago like, why don't you just <laughs> like look at what's going on, uh, and then you can tell us. It's like, you, like you know, like like that. That to me is the frustration, um, and it, it lets you know too. It's like it, it really is not the priority it should be because they only share information uh, or make a policy change after there's some kind of public pressure. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. We, had an inv- we have a female investor as part of the company, um, and she was recently harassed on Twitter. And what she had to do was then go and block the users who harassed her, report those users, and then as part of you know Twitter's process, she had to go through and then look at other content, abusive content from that same user to verify that this person is actually abusive. Like when, when did we make the people who were the users of our product the first line of defense, right? Like yeah. that just, do, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and so, you know, what I'm advocating for is one more transparency, better communication from these companies about when they're taking action and why they're taking action, which I think, you know, most social psychologists who I've spoken with would argue will have a positive reinforcement loop with the people who actually want to make platforms better because they see that some, an action is being taken or maybe they're in the wrong and they'll change their behavior. And then what I'm really advocating for naturally because I'm building a company um, to do this is more robust detection. And don't, you know, take, take the, the human out of the line of fire as much as you can. Yeah, so, so tell us about the technology you're working on. I know one of the, the facets of it is that you have managed to almost build like a taxonomy of abuse and hate speech where you can pick up if someone is being um, racist or uh, abusive like through AI and their use of particular language. And it's not just the obvious ones. I mean, obviously, like, you know, with someone listening to this is just like, well, like, duh, like if you, you know, call someone certain things, like I could figure that out. But a lot of the times it's much trickier than that. Yeah, I, I'm uh, that's it's a beautiful tee up, frankly, because we've just in the last, you know, couple months seen a bunch of examples of this. But um, the, the core of what we're building is a natural language understanding system as a starting point, because in order to solve this problem or to be able to at least detect the nuance of this problem, you need to be able to understand the context in which something is being said. 
So uh, you and I were introduced to Andrew because my company had identified a huge uptick in anti-Asian racism as a result of coronavirus, right? Yes. And so um, like in this example, what we were seeing is we were seeing not only a huge uptick in the normal terminology. And so what most people in kind of the machine learning or data science uh, space would call like a bag of words. So you start out, you know, you have a dictionary of words that are unequivocally bad. That is okay. I heard a lot of those a, growing up. Unfortunately, I, I'm I'm sorry to hear that you did. It's like that is pretty no, reprehensible. Just, I'm just letting people know. It's like we all know what the, the those words. I mean, like the words that come to mind for me are, you know, chink and gook. Um, so, so those like the obvious ones. Um, but then it gets more nuanced. It gets much more nuanced because what happens is um, a lot of like the the current the current attack vector for dealing with this problem is oh let's just come up with the worst words that people use and the standard spellings of those worst words and we'll block them, right? But there are hu- there are a number of problems with that one you have an adaptive adversary problem. There are people who are going to shift their language and we've seen that the language. Um, in online communities shifts exponentially faster than does offline or in the physical world, right? So um, number two is what happens when people are trying to reappropriate terms? You're going to have a ton of false positives, right? So you're going you're gonna to start flagging things totally inappropriately. Um, you know, so like the, you know, the N-word being used in R slash rap um, or even in you know a place like hashtag Black Lives Matter, right? Where someone's trying to reappropriate it versus someone who's using it as a white supremacist. Like those have very different connotations, obviously. But if you can't understand the context, that's really that's really impactful, and it means that your human reviewers who are likely seeing this are having to look through a bunch of content that they shouldn't, and they can't prioritize their queue. The the other so going back to the first point though being able to understand the adaptive adversary. So I'll give you the examples and, and you've seen some of these because you saw our report on it and we have a blog post now about it on, on our Medium account. But during COVID, we saw this huge spike in terms like Kung Flu, um, you know, uh, uh, slant eye sickness, Winnie the Flu, which w- when there's, you know, um, there's adapt adaptation on Winnie the Pooh, which is used in reference to Tiananmen Square. Um, like you see all, we, we actually caught about 85 new terms that had popped up over a four and a half week period that are now a number of which are being used in as a replacement for the words that you referenced. I'm, I'm getting like, I'm guessing there's probably at least one that has a references bats. I'm guessing there'd be like, yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Bad, so like bad eater comes to mind for me. Yep, I think I, ba- I know a friend of mine was called that. Yeah, it's and, and this is the you know so it's problematic not only because it's um, it's reprehensible behavior, but it's also problematic because norms are formed so rapidly in online communities. So it's not only that language shifts, but the norms form really quickly. And so if you let this content fester, then all of a sudden people go, "Oh, that's normal. This, this is this is something that you know people say," and. Regardless of whether you're an adult who, you know, frankly should know better in a lot of cases, or you're someone who is down the rabbit hole and looking to reinforce their beliefs, or you're a young, naive kid who just frankly doesn't know better, like it's problematic in all the cases, right? That's let me a give great you point. a let me give you a like a slight, slightly more disturbing, although uh, all are disturbing, example from the last three weeks. So um, after. Ahmaud Aubrey was killed and then George Floyd was killed, we saw an uptick in the use of the term jogger as a replacement for the N-word. No, it's dark and disgusting, but and you can see it. And so we, we see this all over. I mean, you, you could run a search on Twitter and a search on other major platforms Um and you will find the use of that term being used as that replacement. Like that's really problematic. And so what we're doing is we're constantly keeping tabs on some of the worst communities um, online. And then we're using algorithms to tell us what's bad. 
based on how things are contextually similar to other language. And so that is a huge step forward in terms of this problem space, because if you can keep up with the language of the internet, you actually might be able to address this problem proactively. And so, you know, uh, I'll give you one last stat. There are a thousand terms added to Urban Dictionary a day. That tells you how profound and quickly, you know, lang language is and how, f how quickly it moves online. Now, now, one thing that I I remember seeing, which I think that um, most people sense instinctively, it's like a very, very small proportion of people are responsible for the ma vast majority of the uh, abuse, uh, racism, expressions, uh, hate online. I, I think I saw something like it was like 1% of internet users are responsible for, it was either 80 or 90%. Uh, is that consistent with um, your experience and what you've seen? Yeah, it, it really depends on the community, um, to be fair. But um, on the major platforms, that's definitely true, right? The, the challenge, though, Andrew, is uh, toxicity is viral. And what I mean by that is if I'm, if I'm an asshole to you, the likelihood that you go and have a toxic interaction in, in the next session where you're on that platform goes up by 300%. So, so while it does stem from a... Um, it's not really a small pool of users at this point, but like even 1% of inter internet users, what happens is it's then viral and amplifies and, and spreads really rapidly through those communities. Every week we read news stories or hear personal anecdotes about people being harassed. I want to help these. I want to help people. Like at the end of yes. the day, I built this company to help, to help resolve systemic abuse to, you know, to end online abuse. And at the end of the day, like if I help a bunch of individuals, that's great. Like I'd be very that happy. That is great. Right? I, I love what you're doing because it's so constructive and positive and concrete and practical. You know, like there, and it, you're in a very rare and privileged position where you may be able to actually make a difference to huge numbers of people by actually helping improve the machinery which is beyond the capacity of the vast, vast majority of us. And it's great to, for people to get a sense uh, that people like you exist and that you're doing something that may improve their lives and their children's lives. So if someone wants to find out more about you and your company, it sounds like you have a Medium account. Is it uh, Centropy.com? Yeah, Centropy.com is our website, um, and you will be able to get to our Medium account from there. All right, fantastic. John Redgrave founder and CEO of a company that's going to make the future a little bit brighter and better for all of us. Uh, congratulations, man. And best of luck with the new company. I know it's an incredible journey when you unveil your new enterprise to the public. You've been part of a couple of these ventures before, uh, but you're, you're taking a huge stand. It's so important. Uh, and you're uh, fighting for all of us. So thank you. My pleasure, Andrew, and thanks again for having me on. Happy to be part of the Yang Gang. Yes, Yang Gang. Yang Gang. Welcome, John. <laughs>